This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome back to Misunderstood. I'm Rachel Yucatel. So I could not be more excited to share today's episode with you. It was simply an honor to get to chat with Kimball Musk. The list of his accomplishments are just too many to name, but I'm going to give it a try. Have you ever heard of Google Maps? He had a company that was called Zip2. It was basically MapQuest before MapQuest, which was basically Google Maps before Google Maps. He's a tech entrepreneur who, along with his brother, Elon Musk, you may have heard his name, created this. And, you know, before we even understood how powerful the World Wide Web was going to be, their minds are just beyond what we can comprehend. And although Kimball and Elon had huge successes in the tech world, he decided to follow his passion to New York City and attend the French Culinary Institute, something he found as a passion um, as a child. So not only is he an extraordinary businessman, he's also a chef and an accomplished restaurateur. I've eaten at his restaurant. It's called The Kitchen in a couple different states. I've eaten at the one in Chicago, and it is absolutely delicious. And with his new cookbook coming out, The Kitchen Cookbook, cooking for your community. Everyone will get a chance to try some of his great recipes at home. He raves about the tomato soup recipe. So that's going to be the first thing that I try. He also has a philanthropic initiative called the big green, which educates individuals and communities across the country about the importance of growing their own food. Honestly, I could have talked to him for hours. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the one and only Kimball Musk. Musk, thank you so much for joining me on Misunderstood. It's such an honor to have you here. Rachel, thank you. Thank you for having me. So the first question I have for you is, are you ever seen without a cowboy hat? You know, it's funny. I um, I started wearing this cowboy hat in 2015. I, I, would, I work a lot of farms and work with food. And uh, it, was a, uh, it was a funny thing where I would borrow people's hats. Uh-huh. And, People, I had this amazing conversation with a very, very, very conservative farmer who was very nice, but he said, you know, it's actually not cool to, to borrow people's hats. And I was like, what do you mean? Well, the, a cowboy hat is, is about as close to someone's pet, like, like you have a love for it. Uh-huh. And so uh, they took me to go get a cowboy hat. And I didn't really think I was that kind of person that could wear a cowboy hat. And uh, I uh, bought the hat and then for a few months, I mean, obviously, if I was on a farm, I'd wear the hat. But but for a few months, I would watch the hat as I would leave my house, and it would would like to literally would like talk to me. You don't have the courage to wear this hat, and and I'd be like, man, okay. And I would have a strange sort of psychological conversation with the hat. And after a while, I was like, you know what? I I do. 
And so I just have just worn the hat ever since. And uh, uh, now it gets to a point where if I don't wear the hat, I, I, I feel a little naked. Right, so right. So it's not it. like you're hiding that you've gone bald. No, I'm uh, I'm pretty good, actually. Oh, great, great head of hair there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, so I wanted to start with you, like I do with a lot of guests, um, discussing your childhood. You were born in South Africa, and uh, I want to know what it was like growing up there. Well, we grew up in Pretoria, which is uh, uh, to give people maybe the best analogy, which is not going to sound great, is we were essentially in the Third Reich, the headquarters of the Third Reich uh, of South Africa. So the apartheid government uh, was was you know up half a mile from maybe maybe a mile away from where I grew up, and um, it was it was about as psychologically intense as you can imagine. The 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 violence in the community, the white on white white on white violence, which people don't really grasp, was was the most intense that. That I experienced. Um, mm-hmm. The Afrikaner apartheid government was very, very um, uh, aggressively against the the English speaking the English speaking community and the and also the Jewish community. It was a very um, it was a very very tense upbringing. Mm. Wow! And you grew up with you. So you had two parents. You had. A brother and a sister. Um, your parents divorced when you were young, correct? They divorced when I was young. Um, yeah. My mom, I'm still very close with, but my dad, I don't really, I'm not connected with. Okay. So, what was that like? Did you feel like you were growing up in a single parent household, or was your dad part of your life when you were younger? So, I was with my mom until I was 13, and then, or 12 or 13, and then my my brother had moved in with my dad, and so I felt. My, my my dad is a very troubled human, so I just felt like my brother being by himself there was not right, mm. and so I went to move in with him, and we we ended up, you know, sort of dealing with our dad for for our teenage years, who who really is a mentally uh, unstable human. But you know, you, you uh, on the positive side of that, I, I always say um, my father taught me a lot. He he taught me what not to do. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, I have a lot of people on here that talk a lot about who they are as a person now and and how your childhood affected, you know, who you became. And, you know, I'm talking about psychologists and parenting experts and all this stuff. So obviously, you know, you get really good traits and really bad traits from, you know, who you're with and you either learn from them or you replicate from them. And uh, yeah, I think I really have, I really have turned it into a positive learning experience. I think that Many people who come out of situations, whether it's growing up in apartheid South Africa or growing up in a difficult home, can can kind of turn it into a victim story. And, mm-hmm. and instead, I, I I turned it more into well, what did I learn? And mm-hmm. the, my cookbook that that is is now available uh, wherever cookbooks are sold is it's really about community and it's cooking for your community. Yeah. And what I found was. Uh, for me, an incredible therapy growing up was if I cooked, my father would kind of leave me alone. He really respected that. Mm. And then when I would cook and, and serve dinner, it was one of those things where we would all sit down and connect. And in, in, in that household, there was there was none of that at all until, yeah. unless I unless I did that. Right. And so it was something that um, if, if I was ever with my mom, it was always just kind of a wonderful energy where 
cooking was hey, let's all get down and sit down and have a have a, a joint communication. But it was also a protective mechanism when I was with my father, where I could cook and have my space protected. And right. then also um, when I would sit down and 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 we would eat the dinner, we would we would actually have a connected conversation. It was probably the only time that I could I was able to figure that out. But again, learning from that, I I, I learned to cook for my community versus versus um, find other ways, maybe less healthy ways to 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 deal with it. Right. Okay. So at, at your uh, at a young age, it wasn't necessarily just about the fact that you liked to cook. It was more about it really gave you the chance to create sort of a stability in what sounds like a little bit of an unstable environment. That's right. I, I think it, it it's a it's a um, it continues to be a very med meditative experience for me. So mm -hmm. even when I I cook uh, breakfast every morning with either my kids or if it was just me, I'll do myself and. It's very meditative to get your scrambled eggs right, you know. Even though I've done it thousands of times, it's yeah. every every morning I'm like, oh, I could have done it a little differently there, or a little differently there, yeah. and that that uh, meditation or meditative state, I think, is something I grew up learning how to do. Mm -hmm. And I, if people don't have that experience with food, they they, I really encourage them to try it. It's uh, it, and it's always with the simplest dishes you you get meditative. It's not ones where you're really trying to tackle a complicated recipe. Right. So I've heard you talk about the fact that you started cooking um, more so around when you were 11 because your mom really was horrible at cooking, right? <laughs> right. So, Before sorry, I was with my dad, my mom was, was uh, she, she's a dietitian. She is a wonderful, wonderful mom. But it, it was either the food I cooked or it was brown bread and plain yogurt. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and fend for yourself on food that tasted better. Right. Um, and but it was also a gift. You know, she was kind of getting me to to go shopping and and picking any really any ingredient that that I wanted. I remember uh, um, shopping with her once. I think I was eleven and picking up the the peppers and just smelling them. Just just to just, you know just to, I wonder how this one smells compared to the next one. Mm -hmm. And she, she still remarks to, about that to this day, where she just can't believe that that's her son, because she doesn't. Yeah. Her mind doesn't work that way. It, it's it's a very much a science based, nutrition based, very healthy, but not 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 as joyful as it relates to food as, as I've always found it. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. If you're like me, you tend to set really big goals for the coming year, but sometimes the simplest changes are the most impactful. For me, that's One Skin's two-step approach to healthier skin. It's one of the easiest and best things I've done. Most skincare available on the market, and I've tried them all, is designated and designed to provide a temporary reduction in visible signs of aging, addressing just the surface symptoms. But One Skin isn't just another skincare routine. It's a real science breakthrough. OneSkin's products are powered by a scientifically proven peptide called OS1 that targets lines and wrinkles right where they start, your cells, instead of just masking the signs of aging. OS1 is the first of its kind to actually turn back the clock. With their full line of face, eye, body, sun, and travel size products, OneSkin doesn't only promise healthier skin, they prove it. I've been all in since the first time I tried it. And now for a limited time, our listeners will get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products by using the code UNDERSTOOD when you check out at oneskin.co. 
Starting 2024 off right, give your skin the scientifically proven love it deserves with OneSkin. I traveled to Paris this holiday and I brought the travel pack with me from OneSkin. It was an absolute game changer. Their face cleanser is better than, than what I found at the Ritz Spa. I'm not kidding, you guys. The eye and face creams are my favorite. It was the first time I tried the body lotion and I loved it. I came back and I ordered the full size because now I won't use anything else. It's not sticky and it leaves your winter alligator skin in the dust. People have literally been asking me what I use on my face and I cannot recommend OneSkin enough to anyone who ever asks. OneSkin is the world's first longevity company by focusing on the cellular aspects of aging. OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code understood at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code understood. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them that we sent you. New year, healthier skin. That's one skin. Right. I think there is a misconception about what is healthy. And I was going to get into this later, but let's actually talk about it because some people think healthy has to do with calories or picking a specific diet like keto, protein only, you know, carbs only, whatever it is for them. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean healthy, at least in your book, right? I mean, it's more about, well, tell me what you think, you know, healthy. Yeah, you know, my, my mom, who who spent 40 years as a consulting dietitian with a focus on di diabetes, so very intense um uh, practice uh, working to helping people save their lives, you know, by yeah. their diet. What what she taught me was think about color on your plate. So if you have a lot of meat and potatoes, that's not giving you the nutrition you want. So if you want some greenery, you want some orange, you want some color. Mm -hmm. And then and then the other one, which is uh, which something I've kept with me, is is really get into a routine with your food. So in my case, I have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. In her case, she has a small breakfast, a small snack at 11, small lunch, small snack at 3, and a small dinner. That's her. But mm -hmm. it's a routine that 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 gives you this uh, healthy relationship with food in your body. Uh, and what happens with, um, with most people when they lose a healthy relationship with food is they, they don't, they're not even conscious when they're eating. They're, they're eating out of um, either stress or... Uh, some other some other thing that food gives them loneliness, anxiety, whatever. loneliness, or or they want a sugar high, or there's these these things that are unconscious. Mm -hmm. And uh, her her practice uh, for forty years was, um, and she did this for many people that that I, I got that I knew personally as well is simply write down what you're eating, just write it down, mm -hmm. and don't don't uh, forget to write down everything. You know, so if you want to if you want to eat at two in the morning, write it down. And it turns it from an unconscious experience to a conscious experience. And that's how she really was able to save many people's lives. Because when you have diabetic diabetes, it is a, it's, it's life or death. Yeah. And uh, that turning it from, from unconscious to conscious eating was one of her great lessons. Yeah, that's really important. Um, so, and I think the feelings that are associated with it, once you start to write that down, obviously makes more sense of why you're feeling the need to eat at, say, 2 o'clock in the morning. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So you guys, as you're talking about your childhood being 11, 12 in there, um, all of you have turned out to be someone that we all know, including your mother, which I think is fantastic. But at some point you guys all went your separate ways. I mean, it, you guys came to Canada. It was, I think was the first stop, right? Is that where you guys yeah, went? Yeah. came out in Canada when he was 17. He and I are one year apart. So I was 16. 
he graduated. He was two years ahead of me in school. Uh, and so he actually was able to leave two years before me for a year and a half. And then in between that, my mom and my sister moved out. My sister was so determined to move that uh, this is a funny story. She, my mom went to visit Canada to check it out, to see where they might live or wherever. And my sister, who was 16 at the time, sold the house. Like, sold it without my mom's permission. What? <laughs> so it was, uh, she engaged a real estate agent. She sold the house. And uh, my mom, of course, had to sign the agreement. Right, right. I was going to say, can you do that in South yeah, Africa? But, 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 but my sister had found the buyer, had agreed to a price, negotiated a price, and even set up the movers to take the furniture out. Wow. But so when, the, when my mom came back, she really didn't have much, much of a choice. Much, much choice, right. So I'm curious, why Canada? Like, why not LA? Oh, so actually, my mom Canada was born in Canada. So my mom, my mom has oh, okay. a Canadian passport, and we worked hard with her to give us get out sports before we were 16. And so we all had the freedom to immigrate. It was not a country you wanted to stay in. Um, <laughs> it didn't really matter what skin color you were in. It was it was not, it still is a very, very difficult country to live in today. Uh -huh. uh, and so I, uh, we, we, we knew that she was born there. We knew she had a right to a, to a passport. And so we all uh, kind of worked with her to, to reestablish her citizenship. And then um, and then uh, uh, pass it on to her kids. Right. So tell me some of the first jobs you had when you moved to Canada. Oh, uh, my first job. So I am, um, I, uh, man, it's, it's amazing how life just sends you in such different places. I was obsessed with Wall Street. So I I went into, went to a top business school in Canada called Queen's University in, in Ontario. I worked very hard. To, I would cold call these uh CEOs of major banks to get a, I got a job on Toronto's version of Wall Street. And I had gotten everything that I had wished for. Like I had, I had this intensity and determination and I fought my way to get this job. I got it. And it was the absolute worst fit for me. You can imagine. I, I hated it. It was a, the finance for the finance community that I was around. There were at the, at the end of the day, really bureaucrats. There were, they were they were not entrepreneurial. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. You know, when when I when I my vision of Wall Street was very very entrepreneurial class, yeah. and I'm sure there are many people who were who are like that. But I just didn't get to get exposed to them. Yeah. And so I I get got back from my summer job, dropped all of my finance courses, started to work. You know, do physics electives and philosophy and engineering. And uh, I then did a, a, a house painting business, and I did a, a franchise in my community, and and that's really where I found my passion to be an entrepreneur. Where it's very hard, you're you're you know do or die. There is no 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 no, no like you no guaranteed salary or compensation. You 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 get what you work for, um, yeah. and you're knocking on doors. You're dealing with rejection all the time, and. I was an entrepreneur and actually I was pretty good at it. So I, right. I thrived and it was a, it was a complete U-turn from what I had told myself I would, would love. And then I found out actually what I loved was the, the energy of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Being an entrepreneur. I think it's so interesting because there's like two modes. It's like namaste or it's like, I'll cut your throat to get with <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's like one or the other. And then also, you know, a big part of learning and being an entrepreneur is you have to know when to fail. Like people always say failure isn't an option, but it totally is. I think that's a huge part of being I think an actually entrepreneur. One of, the, one of the most important lessons I've learned as an entrepreneur is this concept of getting used to losing. Mm-hmm. But failure is a different term. Like failure would be shutting a business down. And I, I haven't done that very often. I've done that once or twice in my life. It's really awful, really sad. But yeah. but but the the lesson that I've learned of getting used to losing, which is not to take it so personally, whether it's simply you go and knock on a door and you get a you get a no or a mean a mean response, mm-hmm. all the way to you did a strategy and it, and it didn't work. Uh, okay, pick yourself up again and and keep going. Mm-hmm. And, and the alternative is not really. There's no alternative. It's it's simply that's what it is to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and that that has been that sort of concept of getting used to losing has really helped me be a better entrepreneur over my over my life. Right. Um, so I know at some point you decided to sell your painting company and start. Uh, I, I think you talked about taking a road trip with your brother, but is that also yeah, when you started to work with your brother? Yeah. So my brother and I worked. We did a road trip in 1994. And we we had not worked together at that point. And he's very much an engineering physics genius, as, as I'm sure you guys, the audience would know that already. But mm-hmm. but for me, I was more of an uh, on the sales business side of things, and and loved getting out there, more extroverted. And we 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 love each other, and we're like, let's let's give it a try. Let's see what it's like to work together. And uh, he had a an idea to to do a yellow pages for the internet, and I uh, was I'm very good at sort of product, so I could really help des- design the interface for 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 the end user. It was pretty cool. My my brother and I were the first, literally the first humans to see door to door directions and dynamic mapping on the internet, and wow. we released it to the world in 1995, mm-hmm. and uh, it was. Uh, uh, we were sleeping on the floor of our office. We didn't have any money for for even a home to stay in. Um, we were we were just kind of hoping for the best, you know, just as as any entrepreneur does. Uh, I had a tiny little cooktop stove top in the in the office, but for the most part, we ate at Jack in the Box, and I did everything I could to to do something as simple as pasta, you know, at, at, in our office. But then, you know, then the food smell would come up and, and our, our employees didn't know we were sleeping in the office. So it was like a, it was a, uh, uh, I mean, it was a very fun time and very romantic, nostalgic time for us. And we, we just, we were also in Silicon Valley where I remember walking to, to Jack in the Box at I think maybe four in the morning. And I'm not kidding. It was like that, like that, that late, you're just working that hard. And I passed by another office and there was someone else sleeping in their office, but but had their laptop on and uh, or their computer on. And I actually went and knocked on the door and I asked if he wanted to come to Jack in the Box with me. <laughs> and he became a friend. Oh, wow. So cool. So now this company was called Zip2, right? And yeah. ended up, um, you know, what, four or five years later selling for something like $307 million? Yeah, it was, a, it was a, a hell of a ride. You know, we were we were building things during the internet days. There was no revenue model to speak of. People didn't understand how to make money yet in this space. So it was also very hard because you're constantly just trying to survive. Yeah. But 
what we built was actually very valuable. Uh, this obviously something that people use five to 10 times a day now with, uh, with Google Maps and Yahoo Maps. So we were acquired by Compaq, which owned Alta Vista, and then got sold to Yahoo and kind of were integrated into what became Yahoo Maps. And uh, very proud of that, uh, having that sort of fingerprint on the internet. Yeah, I mean, that's such an interesting story you tell because you started just years before and you guys are basically sleeping on the floor and then you sell this company. I mean, that must have felt amazing. And the same thing of like these, this story that I've heard about you guys taking this month long uh, road trip together where the car kept breaking down because you didn't have, you know, an, an expensive car. Um, you know, in those days, did you ever think that Tesla was coming around the corner? <laughs> not not at all. You know, I, I didn't even think, honestly, that I would stay in technology. I, um, mm -hmm. I when I, uh, when we sold the company, I moved to New York. I was uh, uh, just, my passion was food. And I, I, I loved the, the connection it gave me. I didn't think I would open a restaurant. What, what I thought I would do is I would go to cooking school and I would learn. Because I just, mm. well, why not? You know, I, I'm financially uh, free to be able to do that, and uh, I kind of have this this uh, approach to life, which is, if you if you really want to do something, the only thing stopping you is you. Yeah. And if if I if I had I had talked to, out loud to my my family and friends, I'd love to go to cooking school at some point. All right, here's my chance. So I I signed up for for uh, the French Culinary Institute in New York one of the top schools in the world. Uh, I, it was cost more than go to Harvard. It was such an expensive school. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait a minute. I thought, I thought this was just a cooking school, Yeah. but it was truly one of the top schools, uh, uh, very, very French, of course, with um, the legends of New York or uh, my teachers. And um, uh, it was a very humbling experience. I'd come from riding this very high wave of, of selling a very successful company in Silicon Valley. And all of a sudden, I was no better than the gum on the shoe of my chef. I mean, I remember just being screamed at for hours by this little French chef. I'm six foot five, and this French chef was maybe five foot five, and the spittle would still land on my face. It was like, it was unbelievable, and I just had to had to take it. Um, and if I, at any point I could leave and I wouldn't get my money back. And that was kind of their business model was you come in, you pay full price. If you survive through this, through this, uh, it was like almost like boot camp. If you survive through it, they will consider you a, a French chef. And, um, the, the, out of a class of 25, only six people made it through to the end. Wow. It was so intense. And um, I, I remember having this conversation with the, the, the Alain Salhak, who, who, who's, now, who's now passed away. Um, uh, but I say to him, do, do, do you guys really have to be that intense? I mean, I, I, I know that I'm learning a lot here. And he, he, he would say, oh, I don't even understand. What do you mean? I don't think we're that intense. Hmm. And um, it's just this... Uh, it's a culture of of this old school approach that I just was. Wow, I, I think I just need to change my attitude. I'm, I actually am learning here. I may not choose to be that way, but clearly, when I left there, I knew what I was doing, and I I was, uh, you know, broken down and then reshaped into their mold. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, funny when it comes to the kitchen, our restaurant in in, in Colorado, uh, I I don't really use what I learned. 
from that school. I found this incredible partnership with uh, Hugo Matheson, who's a, a, a chef trained, he's English, but he's training the Italian uh, style and found that to be, there's so much more joy in it. It's much more similar to what I grew up with, where you cook with joy, you cook with a sense of ease. And um, and when I when I met him, I, I, tried, I cooked under him as a line cook for about a year. And he he taught me so much about how to respect the ingredients, respect the process. And so after that time, Jen Lewin and my wife at the time, she, she and I asked him to join us as a co-founder in the restaurant. And uh, we cre created the kitchen. I'm curious about, you know, I want to talk about taking risks for one second, because you had, you had come from this place where you sold this tech business and you had this money. So now, and you've, you've done some things in your past that you realized were not your passion, did not make you happy. And then you went to culinary school because you knew that that was something that gave you happiness. Do you think without the money sort of as a safety net that you would have been able to take a risk like that and just say, you know what, I'm going to go for something that might not have a lot of money in it. I don't know where it's going. You didn't think you were going to start, you know, restaurants that opened all over the place. Like, do you think that it, for people, it's harder to take a risk when they don't have a safety net, or do you think that that's irrelevant that people should just take the risk? You know, I think it's um, it's a hard question to answer. You know, I, I would say that the first business that I did, which was the, the sorry, the first business after school, which was the 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 zip two mapping door to door directions, mm -hmm. we didn't think it would be worth what it would be worth. That wasn't why we got into it. Um, I, I also didn't realize much about the restaurant business either. So I didn't really know how, how it, it's, just, it's a different financial calculation. You know, if you, if yeah. you go to a, a technology company in Silicon Valley, you know, there's a, there's a decent percent chance that it's worth a lot, like a, like an outsized amount. And that's where much of the wealth creation has been in, in, in America over the past few decades. And, and that's not the case in the restaurant world. It's not to say, you can do well. You can you can do make a good living. So I, I would say that I really didn't have enough information to to know what it even meant to have a safety net or what it meant to have a business that that uh, made money. I think the the truth of the business of the fact is my uh, my internet business did not make money, and the restaurant business did make money. Yeah. It's just that you can sell the internet business for an outsized amount. And you right. can't sell the restaurant business, so it's a, it's kind of a. I, I actually really enjoyed the the fact that you could you made a good product, very tangible, and you checked your finances at the end of the month. Your bank balance either went up or it went down. That was actually pretty calming. It was a calming feeling. Um, whereas in the internet world, you just you're constantly fighting, uh, you know, losing it, lose, uh, running out of money. Right. Right. Um, and then just back to that for one second, Elon had said it was a time that he looked back on with disappointment and frustration, even though it did well and sold. Right. So did you feel that same way or did you feel? Yeah, different? no, I think so. The 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 we, we were young mm -hmm. and we were. I think we learned a lot from Silicon Valley around uh, how to run a business. I think yeah. some, some of the best training you can imagine. But but we we're, we're both very capable entrepreneurs, and I I think the 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 potential during those years of of, of making a much bigger impact on the internet was was so great. And uh, we were we were young, and and we were 
we didn't have control of the company and we were essentially required to to work with executives that uh uh you know, that's a sort of classic phrase, you know, the venture capitalists, we're going to bring in some professionals to help you guys make this work. And they actually weren't that good. You know, it wasn't like they weren't bad. They were not bad people. But but when it comes to to innovating and um, and figuring out what this business should be, I think that both my brother and I have proven over the years that, that we're pretty good at that. Um, mm. And uh, so I, I would say it was disappointing. I don't think either of us could argue with the outcome, but it was a very, very frustrating few years. I um, I think that with some different stroke of luck, and I, you know, there's a classic phrase: "Would you rather be lucky or good?" I think um, we there was a lot of luck and there was a lot of unluck that we that we got. I I I would say I, I also don't have I don't have the dwelling on the past issue that some people have, I, I simply don't. I just, hey, okay, now that we, now that the company was sold, now, now what do we do? I mean, for me, that's right. why cooking school called me. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, and I've had several uh, exits since then that, that have taught me to not dwell on, on, on just, just, just to really have more optimism, focus more on the, on the present and the future. Right, right. Okay. So you go through French culinary, the French culinary institute that you talked to us about. You graduate in 2001, correct? Yeah, I graduated just before 9-11. It was yeah. uh, uh, just a crazy, I know you have your own 9-11 story. And, uh, it was, uh, so I, I had this incredible training. I was trained as a French chef. Uh, I was very good at culinary, very bad at pastry, but I knew what I was good or bad. At. So that that was, there's that I also learned I was very good at bread. It was like these sort of things you 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 learn about. And I I I left there thinking, I wonder what I will do next. I didn't think I would open a restaurant. And uh, it was 18 months, very intense. I'm very happy to be out of it. Mm. And then September 11th of of 2001, I I I live very close. I used to live right close to the World Trade Centers. I woke up to the sound of the first plane hitting the building. It was mm. like what was that? And then the doorman rang the bell and said, uh, you know, a plane is at the building, a plane is at the building. And, you know, when you're a New Yorker, you think some idiot has taken a small plane and, and crashed into a building. You yeah. do not think in any way, shape or form that, that that's what happened. So in true New York form, I go take a shower mm -hmm. and I say to my wife, hey, I'll, let me go get a coffee. And we, I go down the elevator, I, I walk out the door. And as I'm walking out the door, the, the doorman says a second plane is at the building. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm just still trying to catch up with what's going on. Mm -hmm. Go across the road to the deli, and there, there's an, there's a much more many more people in line than usual. So it's like 30 people in line at the deli. So like people are clearly not sure what, what's going on. Everyone maybe just decided to I don't know, go to the deli. It was the strangest feeling. <laughs> but there was a radio, there was a radio playing. And no one was panicking. It was just more of a, a frozen feeling in the room. I uh, I knew the deli well. They were my neighbor. So I just grabbed some coffee and left a couple of dollars on the on the cash register. And as I was doing that over the radio, I heard, we all heard that the Pentagon was hit. Hmm. And that's when you could feel everyone panic and just start running. And I 
had to go upstairs, grab my wife. We uh, started running. We got to Canal Street by the time the first building fell. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was this white smoke coming to, to Canal Street, stopped just before us. Anyone who was in that white cloud of smoke would would have lifelong issues. I, I was. We were both on this list of uh, we were required by by law to we have a, an annual checkup to see if we were we were affected physically by by nine um, eleven. Thankfully, thankfully we were not. But but uh, anyone who was in that cloud of dust, I remember cars driving out of it at high speed, people holding onto the outsides of the cars covered, caked in, in this white dust. Yeah. And uh, got to Union Square, saw the second one fall. And uh, I mean, it was like reality breaking. It was just uh, so, so intense. Uh, we ended up staying in my mom's place on 22nd Street in uh, uh, Gramercy Park area. And my mom, who's a well-known dietitian, got a call to to be offered a volunteer spot for the firefighter to cook for the firefighters. And she, you know, with a laugh said, you know, I don't really cook, but my my son does. And then they asked a few more questions. And and I have a I had a security pass because my home was close to World, the World Trade Centers. So I had both a diploma and a security pass. So in the middle of millions of people trying to volunteer to help. Uh, literally from all over the world. Yeah, I was. I had this pass, and um, and so they said, "Well, we'd love his help. No promises, but come down and peel potatoes and see see what happens." So I was so honored to go there and um, spent six weeks, sixteen hours a day. Uh, we were cooked out of the back of a restaurant called Boulet, which was a fine dining restaurant but completely destroyed on the front, but the back of house, and there was this underground area was 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 in good shape. So we, we cooked for the firefighters. We would drive ATVs with coolers of food down to this gymnasium that was remade into a, into a cafeteria. And the these firefighters would come from these giant piles of melting metal. Um, I know your, your experience, you, you probably remember these piles of melting metal. They, they were awful. I mean, it smelled like the dentist. It was just, yeah. just Truly, people people were, were were it was it was just such a difficult thing to experience, and these firefighters would come out of these giant piles of melting metal. They they would be covered in their shells. They'd ha- they'd have this gray look on their faces, and we would feed them. And during a forty five minute period, they they would eat food and they would start to come back to life. Yeah, and you see like light in their eyes, and they start talking to each other, and then they would put their shells back on and go back out into these piles, these melting metal piles to save American lives. It was just one of the most beautiful things I ever experienced. Um, I, uh, I kind of told myself at that point, I just, I just want to, I just want to experience this for the rest of my life. And for me, that meant opening a restaurant. And I, that's really what gave me the bravery to open a restaurant. It wasn't, wasn't so much the financial stability because when you're an entrepreneur, you really are wearing your heart on your sleeve. Yeah, sure, there's a financial risk. There's also a, um, a financial upside, but the failure is, is you know right there for everyone to see, especially in the restaurant world. Yeah, and um, I it really gave me this uh, conviction 
it wasn't just conviction. It was like, I just did not have a choice. I, yeah. I knew I had to do it. Well, number one, I just want to say thank you for sharing that story. So, so many people, um, you know, have heard stories of um, people who lost their lives and they've heard families describing um, those people to keep their memory alive all these years. But you you rarely hear about the volunteers from down then. And I just wanted to share with you that, um, you know, when Andy, so I was 26, uh, Andy was 32. He was in the second building to get hit by the first building that fell. And um I was working at Bloomberg News that day, and it, it's so funny, like you're saying, um, when the first plane hit, we all thought, you know, we're on a newsroom floor, and we're watching it, and we immediately, like you, assumed it was some idiot that it, in a private plane um, that had made a mistake, and um, in true New York fashion, like you're talking about, you know, you don't have any anxiety about it. You know, I just went back to work. I was calling airlines. I was calling analysts to find out how those, this was going to affect the stock market open, um, you know, and I had Andy on the phone with me telling me what he saw in the building across the way, which, you know, of course, was ter terrible to hear and so upsetting. Um, and I remember he described it as seeing papers flying by his window like butterflies. He said it was just so much. Yeah. And the first time that there was a sense of anxiety was when he said, Rachel, I just watched somebody jump out of the window and whatever they are going through and witnessing inside for it to be a better option to jump. He's like, I, I, I don't, I can't, I got to get out of here. So um, at that point we were hanging up to have him go down the stairs, even though I could hear on the loudspeaker, they said, do not move, stay in place. Um, and before I hung up my phone, um, the second plane had hit, um, hit. Oh. So I knew he was still in there. And, you know, I was a news reporter at the time. I, I, was very good about facts. I knew that the plane hit underneath him and I still wasn't worried. You know, I thought, okay, he'll go to the roof because we didn't have this like creativity. It's a horrible word to use it, but I use it all the time to to think that the buildings would have fallen, you know, yeah, right. just, there no was one, no, no one thought that that could even be possible. So I, I still wasn't nervous. And then when it did fall, um, you know, it was the most incredible feeling to watch him die really i mean it's a hard yeah. um and then have my whole newsroom floor the whole newsroom floor got quiet and they all knew andy and they knew that he was reporting you know through me and i was the one talking to the anchor stuck on the news and we all knew the reality of it but you just hold out this hope that seems so ridiculous you know so the streets i was on um 59th and park at bloomberg news and i went downstairs finally after 12 o'clock and looked up the street and it's silent but all these people are walking up Park Avenue covered in that white soot that you're talking about. And I went home. I stayed at work till five o'clock that day, just still not not grasping what had just happened, really. I mean, and going back home and having every TV in my apartment on and waiting for him to walk through the door, knowing that he wouldn't. And, um, you know, I kept those TVs on for a month. I didn't, you know, I just uh, anyway. So I want to get to the point that a couple of days later I had seen on a um, you know, on the internet or whatever, that his name was found at one of the hospitals, which kind of, that was a, a weird thing that everybody kept seeing random names. So I went down to Bellevue and, um, you know, we all made those flyers for people that were missing, which I don't know where that came from, but we all just went to Kinko's, made a flyer. So I wrote what he was wearing that morning, what he was like, sorry. Yeah, no. Um, and I went to Bellevue and he he wasn't on the list obviously, but, um, 
the reason why I tell you this is because there was a, like a food truck kind of, there was these people that all they wanted to do was help us and wanted to hear the stories and wanted to hear about those people. And it was people like you, I'm so sorry. It was people like you that um, made such a difference. And it's obviously in my bones still today. And I think it's in yours that obviously changed the course of your life, um, helping people like me. But I just want to say thank you. Because I, you know, I, those were all nameless people to me at the time. And I didn't know who they were. And I know you were helping the, the firefighters, but it was a moment of just having something normal because we were forgetting to eat, right? We, I didn't eat for days. Anyway, yeah. so thank you. I, um, it took me like 10 years before I could even speak about it. Yeah. All right. So, sorry, let's move on. So you go from there <laughs> to Denver, right? You leave town eventually. Um, yeah. Tell, I, me how, uh, tell me how you started your um, your restaurant. Yeah, I I, I had a um, I think a subconscious desire or need to not be in New York, but I'm sure because of 9/11. Yeah. And uh, looked for a place. I did. We did. I did. We did a road trip from New York to Chicago and Chicago West. So uh, looked and drove through cities in Wyoming, uh, Jackson Hole. Uh, Boulder, Denver, uh, uh, Santa Fe, and then up the West Coast from San Diego to Seattle. And the the idea was to have a place where we could have a family, where we could have a restaurant. And I just loved the New York world-class neighborhood restaurant. I mean, you just, yeah. New York has a lot of great restaurants, but the real magic of New York are these little neighborhood restaurants you've never heard of, unless you yeah. live there. That uh, they know you, they connect with you, they 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 put love into their food, and I wanted to recreate that in a in a city uh, or a town with that where we could also raise a family. So, excuse mm. me, just one second. Um, um, and um, I um, I we found Boulder. Boulder is a, a wonderful town. If anyone who's not been to Boulder, it's worth checking out. And uh, it also has seasons. So I grew up in, in South Africa where I actually did have seasons with winter and summer and fall and and, and spring. And uh, I didn't like California in that it just didn't have seasons. And mm -hmm. I didn't like New York and that the winter was brutal. So I, I was like, yeah. okay, let's go find a place that, that I resonated with. And Boulder has a similar, I think there's a subconscious thing wherever you grew up, it has a similar altitude to where I grew up. Uh, it's a little higher, but it's similar. And it had these four seasons. It had a walkable town. Kind of had what I wanted. And and my wife and I decided to 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 do our restaurant there. Uh, well, first of all, I would say we decided to spend a month there to just get a feel for the town. But within a few days, we were walking down the street, uh, the main street in Boulder, Pearl Street. My dog comes off the leash. It's a black lab. It goes up to this person at a bakery, just outside a bakery, and. Uh, and his name is Hugo Matheson, and he's this English guy who said he was a chef, and I said I was a chef as well. And look, he started a restaurant. He was a he was the uh, uh, the head chef at a at a nearby restaurant, and he invited us over for dinner, and just out of the blue. And I said, well, um, when you when you're in New York, that's an immediate no. Like someone yeah. <laughs> randomly says, come over for dinner, that's a no. And I was like, well, wait a minute, we're not in New York. Let's uh, and I'm I'm pretty much a yes person, but still, though this was a big one, it's like you know what? Let's say yes to this. I think this feels right. Mm -hmm. And we we went over to his, to his home, and kind of like I said earlier, he his his Italian style of cooking 
He did grilled sea bass with some um, uh, poached eggplants with some salsa verde, the recipes in the cookbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the simplest meal you can imagine, which is not something that I was trained on. I was trained if it doesn't take you six hours to cook the meal, it's not really, you're not really, you know, putting the effort in. And he was able to do it with the sort of touch of an Italian grandmother. And I said, you know, I'd love to learn from you. Uh, and I, I'm not 100% sure if Boulder was a fit, but it felt good. Uh, and I have a desire to open a restaurant. But until then, would it be okay for me to work for you? And so I worked as a line cook for him, $10 an hour. Uh, didn't need the money, but I also feel like everyone should be paid for, for a good hours of work. And yeah. so I I um, did that for about a year. And uh, during that time, I got to know him as a good friend. Mm-hmm. And we uh, talked about doing a restaurant together. And uh, Jen, Hugo, and I opened the kitchen in March of 2004. So the And what was the concept for that that made it different or you thought it would stand out? Well, the, we came up with the name The Kitchen because well, that's where everyone hangs out at a party. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the pretense is dropped. Uh, you know, you can throw a party, you can put some great decorations everywhere, and but actually everyone just ends up at the kitchen. And uh, and so we love that sort of that communal reference. Uh, we love, we, we, um, we, 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 we are a pretty high-end restaurant, but... Mm-hmm. If you go to the restaurant, it's very, there's no tablecloths. It's very, it's at the time, it wasn't very common for this concept of an upscale casual restaurant. Uh, mm-hmm. it, uh, it's now much more common, but back in those days, if you didn't have white tablecloths, you were, you were, you were might as well right. be chilies or apple peas. And, right. Right. and, and we, we just didn't have that attitude. And, and in New York, if you, if you went to your local neighborhood restaurant, the food was fantastic and it was no tablecloths, right? It was, uh, so it was something that was done, but it wasn't well known outside of New York. Mm-hmm. And so we we had this vision of a world class neighborhood restaurant for Boulder. Hugo had this vision to work with local farmers, mm-hmm. which sounds weird to say this because we we became one of the founders of the farm to table movement. But it's weird. What the weird thing to say is, I w- I spent years in New York training. No one ever talked about where they got their ingredients. It just wow. wasn't a thing. Right. And here it was this English guy who had this Italian training where it was actually all about the ingredients. Mm-hmm. And um, I loved his style of cooking. And I said, okay, well, why don't you work on getting the farmers on board and I'll work on the business side of the restaurant. We'll both be the, the chefs. And he had this wonderful energy about him to recruit farmers into the restaurant world. At the time, they were very skeptical about working with restaurants and really were discouraged with working with them. Mm-hmm. There was no technology at the time. Everyone used paper chits. It was wasn't like you could email your orders back and forth. Um, and uh, that that also was we. It was two thousand four, so it was an interesting time where I went after they agreed to work with us, and I said, "Would you be open to using a computer? Would you be open to using email?" And I remember taking one farmer to go to Best Buy to buy them a computer. They paid for it, but but I was like. You know, you're going to need help. And I set them up with a computer, set them up with a modem. Now what you do is when you wake up in the morning, just, just email us what you've got. And mm-hmm. we'll email you back what we want to order. And it, I know it's so, like that today is so commonplace. But in those days, it was like a, an epiphany for these farmers who 
who um, they work on a different schedule to the restaurant. So the restaurant, the farmers wake up at 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. and their day is mostly done by 9 a.m. Right. And in the restaurant world, you're, you're working till midnight and you're, you're, your day doesn't start till 11 a.m. So you have this kind of disconnect. And so with email, you, we were able to, to communicate. And, uh, and that's maybe one of our great gifts to the movement was saying to farmers, giving them courage that they could, they could add these, these exciting technological platforms uh, that now are commonplace and still do their business. You know, they don't have to be a different person. Right. So now how many of the kitchens exist? So we have three. We have Boulder, which is now almost 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually the motivation for the cookbook is 20 years. We, we thought it was time. And then uh, uh, Denver, we opened in 2012. And Chicago, we opened in 2014. And mm-hmm. we're going to open Austin, Texas in uh, 2024 next summer. Amazing. I've been to the one in Chicago a couple times. Every time I go to Chicago, I go and I love it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. uh, One of my favorites. All right. So you obviously were doing some very revolutionary things with the kitchen when it started, like you said, using local farmers to change your menu every day, depending on what they had. Zero waste, minimizing waste and um, composting. First wind power business in Colorado. Um, Your nonprofit Big Green that was founded in 2020, 2011. Right. Yeah. Um, it seems to be the perfect extension of this. Right. How did that get started? Well, I think that actually came from us being a world class neighborhood restaurant. We we said to ourselves, how can we be a good member of the community? Yeah. And uh, we had an employee. Uh, his name is Bryce Brown, who was one of our first employees who had a very strong philanthropic ethos to, to him. And he said uh, he would love to help us give back to the community. and. We were we were very open to it. We 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 love Boulder, and he started with. Uh, we were like, let's try and teach teenagers cooking skills, and we thought, oh, that would be a, a natural extension of it. What we learned was actually we're a restaurant. We we were super busy, very hard to to give people proper training, and then we started this idea of well, what if we took kids to farms because we have all these farms we work with. That was beautiful, but the farmers also could only do it on a certain cadence. Again, this is a, they're, they're also busy. Mm-hmm. And then Bryce, his name, he said, you know, his grandfather did this thing in New Zealand where, where they would um, uh, do, put gardens in schools. And what about if we tried that? Mm-hmm. And that's really where we started to hit our stride. And that was actually 2005, 2006. Uh, but it was not us. It was, it was that we were supporting him as a, as a philanthropy. Like, mm-hmm. you know, writing the check, but also giving him some support, uh, you know, uh, people support volunteers, so forth. And then um, it wasn't until I had a very serious accident in 2010. Uh, I went down a ski hill um, uh, on an inner tube to one of those children's runs. It doesn't doesn't yeah. sound like a bad idea, but I'm six or five. It was a bad idea for going on these tiny little tubes. The tube flipped. Landed on my head going 35 miles an hour. Oh, wow. Uh, my chest, my, my face came, was pushed down on my, my chest, ruptured my spine open. Uh, mm-hmm. C6, C7, was paralyzed for three days. And I really had, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, but I've, I really had this voice of God just speaking to me, um, saying that that I... Really, I, I need to dedicate my my life to kids and food, and I was just 
if you're reading from it, you're really in a you're paralyzed. So the doctors were also saying to me, well, the way I broke my neck is very rare, but but they can actually repair the spine, get the blood out of the spine, which is apparently causing the paralysis. And you know, at the same time, I can't even think straight. I'm I'm hearing them say this, and you know, the rational part of me is like, oh, the doctor says I'm going to be okay, but then I just look and I realize I'm just tears were streaming down the side of my face. I just really don't know what is going on. Hmm. But I had this very clear message and uh, I I had a successful surgery. I was horizontal for two months. Uh, I had two years of rehab and the message didn't go away. And so I, I Bryce, who was, who was uh, working in Boulder, he and I talked about it and I said, you're going to keep doing what you're doing in Boulder. We'll keep supporting you. I'm going to take a lot of what you're doing and replicate it around the around the country. Mm-hmm. And so we started working in Denver, and we started working. Uh, this is 2011 in um, Chicago, and we started working at uh, uh, Memphis. And each each city we go to would be we'd learn more. And we we uh, Jen Luen, uh, who who's no longer my wife, but but uh, we were separating at the time. We we're still very close friends. She she designed the learning garden, which now became. We were deploying a hundred schools at a time where we'd go build these outdoor classrooms. And I was really able to take my Silicon Valley learning around scale and apply it to something as simple as as school gardens. Mm-hmm. And it was this beautiful journey of going out. we by by the time Covid hit, we were in six hundred and fifty schools. Wow. Uh, we had 100, 200 schools in Chicago, 140 in Memphis, 50 in Indianapolis, 80 in Denver, 80 in LA, and just uh, working with 10,000 teachers. It was phenomenal. And what was uh, so sad about COVID was obviously schools shut down, so you couldn't really work in schools anymore. You couldn't do, you can't do schools, you can't do school gardens. But even mm-hmm. after, even after uh, COVID was. Uh, they, they reopened schools, they wouldn't allow outsiders onto the school grounds to just reduce any COVID spread. Right. And so for about two years, we were, we couldn't do the work we were doing. And so we did a, a huge pivot. We said, what if we take the the trust we have with our donors, the trust we have with the 10 years of experience, and uh, become a funder? So we started to say, what about funding nonprofits that are in Chicago or are in Memphis? They could take over the work we're doing because getting on a plane, dangerous in the pandemic, the schools didn't really want outsiders in. But if you were a local nonprofit, they might be more likely to skirt the rules because they're mm-hmm. part of the neighborhood. And it actually worked. It worked really well. So over the past uh, couple of years, we we have 150 nonprofits that we support financially. Uh, we bring them together as a community once a year in Denver. Uh, we uh, uh, when I say we, it's it's kind of like this beautiful community. So so uh, they 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 take the leadership themselves as well. We were part of it as well, but right. we as a community, we we learn from each other. We 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 uh, share knowledge, whether it's something as basic as accounting skills, all the way up to here's a foundation that we think could really uh, work with more than one of our nonprofits together. And so it's a uh, uh, this. Uh, mission of connecting kids to food has it's been a journey and where we are today is i think maybe our most beautiful place ever where where are you guys see yourself going in the year 2024 
Well, I think what, what we've learned with this community of nonprofits is we, we started out with this idea of we're gonna we're gonna fund folks almost like an investor, like an angel investor model to to nonprofits. And what we've learned is actually the community itself is so powerful mm-hmm. that what we where we see it going is really building more engagement of the community so that it, as a nonprofit you don't feel so lonely. Yeah. You may be the only one we're working with in Atlanta, but actually there's plenty. There's another one in Savannah, and there's another one in Memphis, another one in, in uh, Nashville. And so bringing folks together, whether you're just doing it for pure bonding purposes or you're actually learning really powerful things from each other, uh, that has become a beautiful end in and in, in, in of itself. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, let's get to the kitchen cookbook. Because you said you started the kitchen 20 years ago. Um, and now this is a first of all, the book is gorgeous. The photos, um, the recipes, they're amazing. Um, I was saying that I cannot wait to be, you know, attempting this in my own kitchen. Incidentally, I have a quick question for you. What are your thoughts on these for people that cannot cook like me? Um, but like I'm um supported, my show is supported by a lot of different um food companies, you know, HelloFresh, um, you know, all these different companies that deliver food to you already somewhat prepped, you know, and and cut up so that you can make dinner or lunch, whatever, easier. Do you believe in that kind of thing? Do you I, see I yourself going companies. into that? A good friend of mine is one of the co-founders of HelloFresh. Oh, okay. Epic Drake. I, I think cooking is wonderful. I think cooking at home with your family is wonderful. I think that you should do it in different ways. One of the ways could be through HelloFresh. Um, uh, and one of the ways could be as simple as one of the recipes we've ever had in our cookbook is the best tomato soup you've ever, ever made, ever had, ever tasted. Mm. And it's got four ingredients. And it right. takes it takes a couple of hours to do it correctly, but it's the easiest recipe you can imagine. Right. Or roasting a chicken. It's just the easiest recipe you can imagine. Those kinds of recipes, I, I really believe it's 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 easy for people to have in their back pocket that they can mm-hmm. say, "Look, sure, I'm going to get some help sometimes. I'm going to uh, use a cookbook, or I'm going to use uh, a service like like HelloFresh, and I have this in my back pocket. I know how to pull a meal together pretty easily." So what I did in the cookbook was so our, our at the kitchen we do seasonal American shared plates. Uh, we we work with farmers or I would say the suppliers of ingredients, the best quality you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But, and, and many of our recipes are fairly complex. Mm-hmm. But what what that give, gives us over 20 years, I was able to choose a hundred recipes that are meant for the home cook. Okay. So you can, you can cook these absolutely delightful, wonderful dishes that, um, that you can get at the kitchen as well, but are, are well within the realm of of a home cook. Some some that my eleven year old daughter could cook, yeah. um, and some that would require a little bit more skill, but always with the intention of cooking for your community at home. Right, and I love that because you know when we've gotten my daughter who is eleven also, and I have gotten those um, boxes from HelloFresh. She thinks it's really fun to cook and it's something that she can do with me besides, you know, because otherwise she's in a room on TikTok or something. So to <laughs> exactly. me, that's like, but um, it's exactly what she, 
Yeah. So what you're saying is is true, though, because that is, you know, whether it's 30 minutes from HelloFresh or something that could take hours with you. But like, especially when you put those pictures in there, that's so important because you're like, this is what it could look like. Right. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's that's really important because, you know, when I grew up, I was looking at like the Julia Child's book or whatever, and it was a little boring and all pages and pages of ingredients. And you were just like, forget it. That's never going to happen. Yeah. But um, so what do you say some- that I, I have a pet peeve with cook- with cookbooks? Uh-huh. And they don't give me a picture of the of the dish. I and I'm a chef. I'm a trained chef. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I I find so much information that my eyes get from the picture mm. that tell me how. You know, I I I also can tell without even because again a lot of experience. I personally have a lot of experience. I can tell from a picture mostly how that dish was made. Um, right. But but a, but a regular home cook. If they have a picture, they, they get excited. They get, they go, oh, oh, I want that. And I made a point of every single dish in in our in that in that in that every single recipe, there is a photo of that of that dish. Um, right. Some of the photos are group photos where we have like a a group of people sharing a food over a table, which I love, which is really how they how people eat at the kitchen. It's right. sharing food and you know grabbing across the table and kind of breaking bread with each other. But every single di- every single recipe has a photo, and as the cook, you can say, "Oh yeah, I I think I want that." Right. So, do you have a favorite? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I would say um, the this is going to sound very simple, but the uh, the bolognese bolognese sauce. Okay. I'm so proud to say that I think it's the best one in the world, and I've tried okay. I've tried all of them because I'm such a fan, such a huge fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the tomato soup is the best one in the world that I know of, and I mm-hmm. have tried all of them. So I think that my favorites are really the simple food. Okay. And then we have uh, a more complicated dish in there, which is the slow roast pork chop, which is a double cut pork chop with uh, spätzle, which is a, a German pasta, and uh, and roasted uh, roasted onions. Wow, sounds delicious. It's so good. Um, so, but so, all of these you could get in the the restaurant, so you could see how it's supposed to taste. Correct? Yeah, exactly. The, the, okay. the, the, the kitchen does change the rest. Our recipes are seasonal, so you depending on the season, you, you'll 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 get it or, or not. But okay. bolognese will never go off the menu. The tomato soup will never go off the menu. Got it. Uh, okay. There are some dishes that we might change around, but yeah. So I think for the most part, you'll be able to experience it in the restaurant and then go home and cook it at home. And our goal is for it to be a joyful uh, community experience. Okay, awesome. I love it. All right, before we're done here, just very quickly, I have a few rapid fire questions for you. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> how many cowboy hats do you now own? Great question. So I've been at it now for nine years. I have one hat per year. So I hang up my hats at, at the end of each year, and they are really completely destroyed by the end of the year. And but they're kind of crumped up, and I can each one has a different hat band. So right. I have uh, I have seven of them hanging up in my house. I'm wearing my eighth one, okay. and uh, uh, I believe this one will last through probably next summer is my hope. And uh, uh, and I'll get to hang out hang up the next one. Do you have an area in your house, like, you know how some men have a closet that's just dedicated to their sneakers? Are you going to have a closet just dedicated to your hats eventually? I have a wall in my office dedicated to my hats. Okay. All right. Perfect. Um, what kind of a car do you drive? 
I drive a Tesla. I drive a Model S. I have uh, loved that car since we brought it out in 2012. I will say I am excited to switch it to a Cybertruck. So I'm getting my Cybertruck really soon. And uh, uh, I've never been a truck person. uh, And all of a sudden I am. I'm very excited about it. Okay. And if someone wants to get the Cybertruck, what color is the best one? Does it we only, come only give it in one color? Oh, so is it black? Stainless, no, stainless steel. Oh, and okay. Then it's up to you to wrap it any way you want. Amazing. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, if you were on a deserted island, what would be the one food you could bring with you? Uh, roast chicken all day long. Okay. Who is the most famous person in your phone? In my phone. Well, my brother's a pretty well-known guy, but if I... Oh, was... right. I forgot. <laughs> that I answers my... that. Other than my brother's my mom, so I really have to go down the family. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, that's a good, a great answer. Okay. Um, what is the last show you binged? Oh, great question. Um, uh, at Winning Time, there's a basketball show about okay. the rise of the L.A. Lakers, and it's a total binge-worthy show. Okay. Um if you have one day f- uh, full of freedom, like free of responsibilities, how would you spend it? You know, that's a great question. I love cooking. So I I would I would cook for my family and I would uh, I would love every moment of it. Okay. Um do you have plans to go up into space? I think that I probably will at some point. Uh it's um very exciting. My, my, I think my 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 the, my sweet spot would be going for a trip around the moon. Okay, isn't that uh, crazy? To even think we can say that out loud. Yeah, completely <laughs> crazy. Is it crazy that your brother is the one making that a, it's a reality? Crazy. Surreal. I mean, surreal. Um, okay, I'm assuming you know how to pronounce Elon and Grimes's children's names, but can you pronounce them for us? And do you have a nickname for them? Um, I, uh, I do, I do, uh, I, I will say that it's all nicknames. Okay. And uh, so for me, it's, uh, uh, I, I will leave the names out of it because I'd rather keep our family names out of it, but, uh, but yeah. Okay. We use, we use okay. Them. So they are pronounceable within the family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, who was your first childhood crush? Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I uh, uh, there was a, a wonderful. I mean, I was quite young actually. I was uh, probably eight or nine years old, and it was another girl named Kim, and uh, she, we were in school together. And it was obviously the most platonic thing you can imagine at nine years old. But it was actually something I'll never forget. It was pretty, pretty beautiful. Childhood crushes are the best. Um, okay, last question: What is on your bucket list that you haven't done that you really would like to do? Besides the things you're talking about, going into space, stuff like that. You know, I'm actually I'm one of those humans that that uh, I I find something on my bucket list and I check it off. So, you know, so I just actually wanted to learn how to be a skydiver. So I oh. got my, my A license this past year and uh, got the courage to jump out of an airplane uh, 28 times. You have, to, you have to be over 25 times to to get a license. Oh my so uh, I'm still working on my next bucket list, but uh, just just finished the last one. Amazing. Okay. Um, tell us where we can find uh, the Kitchen Cookbook and when it will be officially released. Yeah. So uh, please uh, go to your local bookstore and um, order it. Uh, you can order it ahead there. It comes out in March. 
Uh, it'll come out in time for you to get something for your mom for Mother's Day. It's also something you can get now for a gift for, for, for Christmas. It'll come out in March, but you can give the gift ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. And if you guys want to sample any of the dishes like we've been talking about, please check out one of the restaurants, the kitchen, um, in the um, in the places that we discussed. Thank you so much, Kimball. I really appreciate you being on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or want to reach out? Email us at info misunderstood podcast at gmail.com. That's spelled M-I-S-S understood. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time. Misunderstood.